Well, this morning we continue in a series that's going to take us into at least one more week, if not two, about why celebrate Christ's birth. And it is really a defense of it, to defend that that is under attack by some within Christianity. And we want to strongly reiterate that this is a calling of God. That the accounts given to us both in Matthew and Luke as well as in John rehearsed for us an event that was monumental. And yes, we look forward to the cross event and of course even more we look forward to the resurrection. Um, But we cannot miss the evidence that God has put out there that the celebration of his birth should be huge among the Christian community. We saw two weeks ago that it was the anticipated event, the coming of the Holy One, the Messiah of Israel. We saw in Simeon, in Anna, in Matthias, we saw in these uh, Zacharias, we saw in his prophecy here in, at the birth of his son John the Baptist, um, that this was the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, the covenants from the beginning of time, that we looked at the wonder of this is God's plan that people look forward to, and as soon as the Christ child was born, they understood that this was the fulfillment of the beginning of the end of our sin. This is the fulfillment of God's promise that certainly would end in a cross. And we see that in Simeon's prophetic utterance. Certainly it's there. Um, but we cannot miss the fact that just the presence of the Christ child in the temple area was enough to garner so much excitement among the people of God, those who were righteous, who were godly, who were looking for the consolation of Israel. And so, yes, his birth matters for that reason, because it was anticipated and expected. We saw last week that the birth mattered because it was in the context of his birth that we find perhaps one of the most critical and necessary doctrines uh, accomplished, and that is the virgin birth. And we looked back at Genesis and found that the very first thing we know about the Christ is that he was going to be of the seed of a woman. Is the very first thing we find out. Of all the information God could have given us about who it was and what it was, what would be the accomplishment that would crush Satan's head, the serpent's head, we find that it was the seed of the woman is the one description. And we looked through and saw how the scriptures lay out the necessity of the virgin birth and that if you do not have the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, you do not have a Savior. He cannot save you from your sin if he carries the sin of his father upon him. And therefore, the virgin birth theologically was absolutely necessary. Not just the miraculous nature of it to set aside this person, Jesus Christ, but theologically it was absolutely necessary or he could not have become sin for you because he would have had his own inherited sin. And so the virgin birth from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through was of absolute necessity. And so when we come to the Christmas narrative and we study that, yes, we celebrate it, for it was what we have anticipated from the beginning. 
is what we have looked for. And yes, the virgin birth is a cardinal doctrine. And without it, um, your belief system in Christ is errant and of no value. If you do not have a perfect Savior born of the Spirit. And then we also, as we looked and considered that because of the nature of our world today over the last several hundreds of years, centuries, we have to defend the... And it's unbelievable we have to do this, but we do. We have to defend the the singular worship of our Lord that is not to be shared with his mother. And so we talked about that we do not exalt the virgin, we exalt the one born. We do not need to do anything further than the Bible declares in so doing. And so we saw in Mary, not someone that was a unique creature herself, but rather we found a humble servant that had a conversion experience who said, I am your maidservant, do to me as you please, who, when given the opportunity, directed everyone's attention with a single statement, do whatever he says, my son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do whatever Jesus says as the directive for those that she encountered. Do whatever he says. We have no idea of, and we have no notion that she had influence there, but rather she simply directs our attention to do what the Son has said and continues to say. And so we found that much like Mary, we share a common experience, that we who have accepted Christ as our Savior have been confronted with a good news story that is almost, that is, it's not almost, it is an unbelievable story, that Christ wants not only to deliver us from our sin, but he wants to make us heirs of his kingdom and indwell us. That we become vessels for the Holy Spirit of God, carriers of God, in our earthly bodies by the wondrous working of the Messiah on our behalf. And it is the declaration of faith that says we are the servants of God. He may do with us as he pleases. And our statement to one another and to challenge and encourage one another should be the same. Do what Jesus says. Do whatever he says. So this has been the last two weeks where we have focused on our attention. Why is the virgin birth? Why is the celebration of the fulfillment of the prophecies um, important. Well, it is theologically important. It is necessary, and so we celebrate it. And we celebrate these two things annually, his birth and his resurrection. These are the highlights. These are, and we are celebrating really his resurrection every Sunday. That's why we celebrate on Sunday morning, the most uh, powerful working of God um, in history is the power of the resurrection. He made the world out of nothing. That, until the work of Christ, was the greatest work of God. And then, through the work of Christ, he made that which was tainted by sin a new creation. And so we celebrate its initiation in the birth narrative, recognizing that the Christ child 
had to be a unique individual. He is God and man. And that began there in that womb, and it, be, and it began to be displayed to us at the manger. And so we celebrate it. And we have two other reasons that we are going to investigate more fully of why it is not only proper, but in fact um, necessary that we as believers uh, make this celebration the high, one of the highlights of the year. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather your name this morning and to gather around your word. And we come to you praying again that you might direct our thoughts and our time to be pleasing to you, to be uh, keeping to your word of truth, that your spirit might fill both what is said and what is received, that uh, we might be responsive to it. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for our Savior. We rejoice in what he has accomplished for us. And we are filled with joy at the opportunity we have today to celebrate his birth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Luke chapter 2, we have a very familiar passage to us. And uh, as Benjamin has quoted that this morning for us, uh, we have the narrative from Luke's perspective. We're going to be looking more at Matthew next week from Luke's perspective of our Savior's birth. And of all the, whenever I've been confronted by people who are anti-celebrating Christmas, usually they bring forth several arguments. One of those is they don't like the term Christmas, um, and rightly, I understand that. They don't think that this is the day that Christ was born, and, and that's probably true. It wasn't probably December 25th, um, but they don't know that it wasn't either. Um, we don't have that information. We have some clues that might direct us away from it. And so they just cringe at the whole thing and the commercialization, and they think we should just throw out the baby with the bathwater. And um, I don't, I obviously have stood against that, um, my ministry, and they have tried to influence me. And uh, the, some of them I get very adamant as they know and, and, and they have all this um, insight into how heathenistic um, this celebration is. And certainly, um, by the way, if you look through the calendar, I would challenge you to find any month that, you, that is not, does not have some heathen celebration in it. So good luck trying to find a day that isn't associated with some ancient cultic celebration. Um, but uh, they say, oh, we're just attaching this and this. They have problems with trees. They have problems with lights and decorations. They have problems and problems and problems. Whenever I've had to address them, whether it be in writing or in conversation or in, in the context of uh, meetings, um, I've always come to this aspect, I think, as one of the arguments that dispels all of their negative comments and views. And that is, um, on this occasion... And there are rare occasions that we have so much of the heavenly realm engaged in directing human attention to this one facet of worship. 
I would challenge you that there are, outside of his resurrection and his second coming, um, the heavenly realm was most engaged in the affairs of men on this day, the day of Christ's birth. We have engagement of angels with others on many occasions in the Old Testament, not many, a few occasions in the Old Testament. We have instances where we see the angel of the Lord, capital A, capital L, um, the pre-incarnate Christ. We see him uh, in the... We see him in the burning bush, and we see him in the fiery furnace. Uh, we see him uh, portraying himself. He'll say, I've seen the Lord. Um, we've also seen uh, the angels involved in, in, with men like Jacob and with the giving of the law. The Bible tells us the angels were involved there. Um, but nowhere can I find anywhere in Scripture the extent of the heavenly host engaged in an event more historically than the birth of our Lord. We don't even find it that extensive at his death, burial, and resurrection. It is here. And by the way, the next one after that, that isn't historical but future, will be at his second coming. So are the comings important? Yes, the first coming of Christ as a baby was important. So important that the heavenly host were engaged on a level unfair seen on the earth prior to this. Now, I would contend and agree with you and that, that on Mount Sinai there was a powerful working, but that was never attached to and engaged with the, the, all the heavenly hosts. This was God on the mountain um, and the fierceness of that. We have individual, and, and even when you think of the angelic visitation to Sodom and, and Gomorrah to Lot, um, these are two, and we have these engagements, even the engagement with Mary and Joseph of announcing the coming um, doesn't compare. And when we come to this account, we grow so familiar with it that we don't maybe take time to really consider what God has just done. He has done something that... Um, rivals any other encounter that we have had with the heavenlies. And it is listed here, and it is given out in the field to shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. And here comes an angel, verse 9 of Luke chapter 2. An angel of the Lord stood before them. Not so impressive, one guy, I mean, Lot saw two. We have people engaging angels occasionally. But the next phrase should catch our attention very quickly. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. This was not just a single angelic visitation comparable to what Mary had and Joseph had. This was about to be an entire heavenly proclamation. This was something uh, comparable, and if you want to see the glory of the Lord shown round about them, um, I would not hesitate to direct you to think about the Shekinah glory of God that filled the temple that, that turned night into day, that drove the priests out of there because they couldn't be in the presence of that. This is the, the level that we are describing here, that the glory of the Lord shone around about them, turning night to day. 
And no wonder they were greatly afraid. This has always, always been the response of people to angelic visit. And shown the glory of God, even the prophets trembled. Woe is me, I am undone, Isaiah said. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. I should not be seeing this kind of glory. God is about to reveal his glory that he has not shown since he, the Shekinah glory left the temple. And now here it is out in the field. And the glory of God fills us. We are not going to see this kind of glory at the resurrection. We are not going to see this kind of glory at Calvary. We're going to see darkness at Calvary, aren't we? Not the shining of glory. We are going to see a Savior that is going to be somewhat unrecognizable, and Revelation tells us why. It's because he's white. He's been glorified. Why else would Mary think he was just an old gardener? Revelation describes him as white, white hair. And, and uh, if your Jesus has this long, flowing brown hair, you haven't read Revelation very well. Post-resurrection, white-haired. The glory God, comparable to Moses, who was in the glory of God, and people couldn't even look at his face. You just wonder if the shepherds were, like, glowing as they arrived at the manger scene, having been exposed to the glory of God round about them. They were engulfed in it engulfed in the glory of God. Something fantastic is happening and fear is the first and normal response of man to it. And the angel, as he has said to Mary, to Joseph and to me, others, do not be afraid. This is something good. And I want to share with you that they had good news then and it's good news today. That Christ was born. And shame on those who would seek to dissuade us from celebrating good news. Don't be afraid to do this, to celebrate our Lord's coming. He then gives them the account that we are very familiar with of where they will find him, who he is. Um, he is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Uh, where you're going to find him in a manger of all places. How weird is that? And then verse 13, we have another explosion of heavenly activity. You, know, you have the angel of the Lord coming out. You go, whoa, this is intense. And the glory of the Lord engulfing you. And wow, you know, no one's seen this for uh, decades, hundreds of years. And now... Out of the heavenlies, it says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And these aren't just angels. This isn't just a lot more angels. And anyone who has done any study of heavenly hosts know that there are many species of servants in heaven. We get to Revelation, we find the, the 24 elders. We find living creatures. We find uh, all of these that are worshiping God around the throne of God and with different functions and purposes and symbols. And that's what's described here as the heavenly hosts are there. Innumerable. And in this wondrous and powerful heavenly choir, we find this description, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, and this powerful declaration. And it was very evident what they were supposed to do. 
Uh, all these, they didn't say go, go look at him. They said, if you want to find him, I'll tell you where to find him. They didn't command them to go look for him. It says, someone's been born to you. I'll tell you where. I'll tell you what to look for. And if you want to find him, you can find him. That's the good news. So the shepherds, having contemplated this heavenly intrusion into their life, consider and say, well, we should go to Bethlehem. <laughs> we should go to, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing. But I want you to notice something. Let us see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. God has revealed himself to these shepherds. And they are not going to keep this to themselves. They're going to share with everybody they encounter, and it's going to put Bethlehem into crowded, overfilled Bethlehem. It's going to put the excitement into what's going on and what's happening. What, what does this all mean? And we're going to find that everyone is going to be stirred up and praising God and glorifying God. And people marveled, for the heavens have been revealed in an incomparable manner to men. And I would just put forward that when God has sent such an angelic host, when he has made such a show of the heavenly realm, to men on earth, we ought to be ready to take note of such a time and celebrate it as the beginning of our salvation. Now, are there some facets of our worship, of our celebration, that perhaps need to be reconsidered? Well, maybe. And we've been talking about that on Sunday nights, about how to celebrate as a, as a Christian, as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, how are we to celebrate? And yes, there are probably some facets, some traditions that we have that have no real place in this storyline. And we looked last Sunday night at, at uh, that instead of give, give, or gimme, 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 the Bible says you should be sacrificing at this time. Instead of wanting getting our list together, here's what I want, probably we need to be more thoughtful in saying, what should I give to the Lord? What have I given to God? So we talked about sacrifice last Sunday night as part of celebration, and that they never came before the Lord without a gift. They never came to God without a sacrifice, ever. And so, yes, there are facets of our celebration and some things that we can say, well, the origin of this is, is pagan or is heathen, um, but we do not portray it as such, nor do we um, engage ourselves in it. There is much that is pagan and heathen in how you live and what you think of this world that is really not biblical. And so we are called upon to consider our ways, certainly, but we are never going to be convinced that we can do away with a celebration entirely of our Lord's birth, given the extensiveness of this heavenly entourage that visited us. 
Well, not only were there angels, there was also a star. And again, we are confronted with something way out of the ordinary. So particular was this event um, that it drew in men from distant lands to recognize that this is something noteworthy. And we are going to be looking more at the Magi next week and talking about that. But I really want to address the whole presentation by God of a heavenly body to direct men to a particular place for a particular purpose. And again, there are some Old Testament occasions that this sort of thing had happened. If you'll remember during the time of Hezekiah, when Hezekiah was, well, God gave Hezekiah an opportunity to say, well, you want a sign that what I say is going to be true? What sign do you want? You want the shadow to move forward or backwards? And Hezekiah says, well, I want the shadow to move backwards, because that's really strange. And so God has the sun move backwards, the shadow move backwards, um, and it gets people's attention. That's not just a regional event. That is a global event. And the men in the Chaldeans are, well, what happened? <laughs> These men studied the sky, the stars, sun, the moon, the movements, and then to see it disrupted, to actually reverse course, and it drew them. And they said, well, this is, be they heard as they inquired and discovered, well, what made this happen? Who could do this? And it was because of a king's request in the land of Israel named Hezekiah. And they made their way to visit. Because they want to know about this God of Hezekiah of Israel. So there are Old Testament comparables. But we come to the star and we recognize that God isn't just calling shepherds to Bethlehem, to the manger, um, God is calling the world to come and worship the child. That from conception, he was one to be worshipped. This is why Elizabeth, as she was instructed by her child in her womb, was going to worship Jesus being carried by Mary. He was worthy of worship. And God called, invited, if you will, not only, and this was an invitation, this was not a command, this was an invitation for shepherds to go visit their Messiah. And for all that land of Judea. I'm pretty sure that this could be seen on the horizon by a lot of people. If they were looking. So God certainly calls shepherds and calls Israel to recognize her Messiah, but he invites the world. And I want to just challenge you that the world saw this star. It was a unique thing. We try to say, oh, well, this is the Bethlehem star, that's the Bethlehem. We try to use all of our astronomical, not astrology, astronomy, all our astronomical 
astronomical knowledge to try to figure out what the star Bethlehem was with what is currently existing in the heavens. And can't you read the account and discern that that is a unique astrological event of God's making? It was so unique that when the Magi saw it, they were like, oh, we, have, we know where we need to start heading to. They could check the books from a few hundred years ago and find out it's got to be the land of Israel. Whenever something like this bizarre happens in our skies, um, we make our way to Israel ever since Hezekiah. And so here they come, out of the east, it says. And, but I want you to recognize that God's invitation wasn't just to a few out of the east kings. His invitation was to the world. It's tragic that only one part of the world responded. When the whole world was shown that a child's been born. And so the star itself calls us to come to a baby and celebrate. And yes, I recognize that we need the cross, and we need the resurrection. We don't miss that at all. That is not lost on us. We are not de-emphasizing that. But we are recognizing that God has used the heavenly hosts. He has used the heavenlies, the intermediate heavenlies of our sun, moon, and stars to draw our attention to the child, to the infant, to this one born king. Born our Messiah, born Emmanuel, God with us. And so we find all of these from Simeon, Anna, Magi, shepherds, um, other Bethlehemites that have heard it. And we see them all responding, recognizing this is one to be worshipped. Not just later on when he's the resurrected, powerful Lord, but today as the child. And so we worship, and we celebrate this event. But again, we have to take a moment. Just like last week, where we celebrate the virgin birth, we have to guard ourselves from worshiping the virgin. So we have to do something similar today with regard to all this. The angelic realm are the servants of God, and they're purpose is always to direct our attention to the glory of God, not to them. And so in saying the angelic representation here directs us to worship, it is not to worship them, but to worship the one they point to and share. And I invite you to go to Hebrews chapter 1 just to get a little look at this. And so we must take this time. Begin in chapter one, verse one. We can we're going to jump into verse two as well, chapter two as well. But let's God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days, spoken to us by His Son, 
whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a, to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, notice, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Even here, late in the church age, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews starts off with, Don't you remember his birth? When he was brought forth, all the angels were called to worship him. Not that we elevate the angels, but we recognize that they had a part in this celebration that calls us to worship God, the child. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits as ministers of flame of fire? But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. We cannot displace any of the glory that is, belongs to Jesus upon any of the angels. This is a mistake that humans often make. Not just heathens and those that are ignorant of the God's word, even men like John, confronted with an angelic being, wants to get on his knees. And say, Don't do that to me! I'm just a servant. You don't bow to me. And we have this propensity to worship creatures instead of the Creator. It's just, we see that one and we go, wow! And what an easy thing it would be to start worshiping it. And we have so much of that in our, in our culture that somehow these angels be, take on a higher role than they ought. And the star takes on a higher role than it ought. They are all there to direct our attention as Hebrews says, to glory in the firstborn himself. We do not glory in the angels. We do not glory in the star. We, we see these as instruments God has used to direct our attention to worship of the child Jesus. And yes, it's okay to worship the child Jesus. As long as you don't leave him a child. It's okay to worship Jesus on the cross. As long as you don't leave him on the cross. We worship the Jesus who was born, died, and resurrected and is today in the heavenly realm at his throne. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every angel, every heavenly body is simply an agent of his. And so Hebrews says he is so much better, he's superior to the angels. Don't confuse this. Don't you worship a creature whether her name is Mary or, or Gabriel or Michael, do not worship the creatures. They are all there that God has used to direct our attention to worship of God, the Son, Jesus Christ, and Him alone. He goes on in chapter 2 of Hebrews, 
Verse 5, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. The angels can't save you. Angelic visits don't mean anything at this point. For we have a Savior, Christ the Lord. And, and any angel that does not direct your attention to glorify and worship Christ the Lord is not of God. I don't care if you dreamed it up. I don't care if you were dead on the operating table, came back to life and saw it. If it doesn't direct your attention to the worship of God and His glory... It is not of God. And so we find that we have within our hymnody a lot talking about the angels. We sang many of those this morning. Hark the herald angels sing. But what did they sing? Glory to the newborn king. And this is what we hold to. We are not celebrating and worshiping trees, angels, virgins, wise men, cattle. <laughs> We're not worshiping any of that. We are not worshiping stars, lights, decorations. These are elements we use to seek to glorify God. And we never want to lose track of that purpose that the purpose of all celebration ultimately is to bring glory, honor, and praise to God, Jesus Christ. And if there is anything you're doing this day that fails in that measure, then get rid of it. Extract it from your traditions and fill up your celebration of Christ's birth with agents that are capable of directing glory to God. And they vary. I want you to see the variety that God throws out there. I mean, we have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We have shepherds with simply their praise. You have angels. You have stars. You have prophets. You have um, all of these engaged in this process, uh, all put to bear on this one act of worshiping the child, who would and was our Savior. He was as a child our Savior. For once begun, we know that the cross would be his future. Once he is here, we know he's going to have power over sin and death. Oh, the prophets all knew that. The angels knew it. The Mashai knew it. This is the one who would care for our sin. Yes, that is his future. 
and it is sure, and it is time of rejoicing because at his coming, because as soon as he has come, we know it will be accomplished. And so I want to encourage you today. Worship the king. <laughs> Even when the king is a child, we have every reason to worship him. The angels invite it. Shepherds ex give us an example of it. The Magi tell us that this is a global, worldwide invitation. Celebrate and worship Jesus. The heavens declare his glory. The prophets foretold it. Worship the Lord. In a manger, but didn't stay there. On a cross, didn't stay there. In a tomb, didn't stay there. Ultimately, we're worshiping the one who is today on the throne of heaven. And one day, we'll have his throne here. Until that day, keeps worshiping that one. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you so much for coming as a child. Weak, helpless, not in golden courtyards, but in a manger stall. And Lord, we thank you that you've humbled yourself to deliver us from our sin. And Lord, we pray that you might give us wisdom, discernment in our celebration of your coming, even as we anticipate your second coming. Lord, help us to be attentive, even as we are attentive to the prophets, the covenants, and the virgin. Lord, help us be attentive to your angels. Give glory to you and you alone, for you are the Son that can take away the sin of the world. Lord, help us to worship you by your spirit and to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.